Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs. It's a refreshing, common-sense approach to some of the most important discussion points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman. Everyone, I'm Carlos Chapman, and I'm your host of Getting Common. In my day job, I'm an associate professor at Washington and Lee's Law School. The topic of today's episode is the law of cryptocurrency and NFTs with my guest, who is an expert in the area, Carla Reyes. I will start by having her introduce herself. Carla? Hi, so I'm Carla Reyes. I'm an assistant professor at SMU Dedman School of Law in Dallas. I um, teach in the areas of business and commercial law and uh, in blockchain law and um, related issues related to artificial intelligence in the law. I research pretty firmly, squarely in the area of cryptocurrency and blockchain technology. It's my favorite thing. I practiced uh, as a blockchain lawyer at Perkins Coie for roughly seven years. So before it was a thing that people thought was a thing, I was a blockchain lawyer. And I will say you are also involved in developing legislation and you have written some amazing code um, for some self-executing documents that I hope we can talk about later in the podcast. So if you ever need a blockchain expert, I actually had a friend yesterday who was like, hey, do you know anybody who does this? Or I heard this lawyer talking about blockchain. And I said, well, that was Carla. <laughs> um, and I was like, that could only actually be Carla. Like it was Carla. Like that's that's whose paper you read. That's whose work you read. So we have the quintessential blockchain, crypto, NFTs, all things like tech expert here today. Thanks. All right. So let's start with something really, really basic. What is cryptocurrency? You say that it's basic, but it's actually not that basic, but we'll try. Okay. So cryptocurrency is a broad term that is now used to as a catch-all for many different types of digital assets. And I should say there are probably three terms thrown around there now that I would consider catch-all. So you might hear crypto assets, you might hear cryptocurrency, and you might hear digital assets. I think of digital assets as the most broad. So that it could include um, things like your photographs, right? It could include uh, things that are subject to the Uniform Fiduciary Duty and Digital Assets Act. Um, but it could also include crypto assets. Then I think crypto assets is the term used most broadly to come encompass cryptocurrency, tokens, etc. Then cryptocurrency itself, when people use that term, I think they usually, not always, but usually mean to refer to what I think of intrinsic cryptocurrency or native cryptocurrency. It's a cryptocurrency that makes a certain blockchain work. So blockchain itself, is a protocol technology that runs on top of the internet, first of all, right? So it doesn't exist in a vacuum, but it sits on top of the internet. And then it is a protocol for allowing people who don't necessarily know each other and maybe don't agree, you know, trust each other um, to agree with each other about the existence and evolution of shared facts between them. So you'll hear it called a ledger a lot. It's not really a ledger, depending on the protocol. But they use, we use the metaphor sometimes to uh, explain that basically it's tracking transactions between a bunch of people who don't know each other in a trusted way 
um, without an intermediary. So it's like your bank account uh, transaction ledger without the bank. Um, the software itself is doing it. And the cryptocurrency is usually the transaction that you are tracking is transfers of those cryptocurrency. But a cryptocurrency usually also has some role to play in the security of the protocol. So the biggest examples people have heard of are Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the cryptocurrency that is intrinsic to the Bitcoin blockchain. And it's been customary now to sort of separate the two and say, like, I do blockchain, but I don't do Bitcoin. That's not that's like not technically a thing <laughs> that you can do because the Bitcoin blockchain doesn't work without Bitcoin. Um, and similarly, you can't transfer Bitcoin without the Bitcoin blockchain. The, another example would be Ether for the Ethereum protocol. Ether is the cryptocurrency that comes out of the operation of the protocol, but also it's it's important to the secure functioning of the protocol. It has an actual computer science function. It's not just like a, a monetary token, right? And then within cryptocurrency, I think sometimes people use it to mean to, when they really mean tokens. So there's a lot of talk about um, ICOs or initial coin offerings, but those are tokens in my sort of terminology, taxonomy. A token is a second layer cryptocurrency. So if you imagine the blockchain sits here, that's layer one, and it has its own cryptocurrency that makes it work. Then on top of that sits a smart contract that creates a token. And and, um, and uh, initial coin offerings are pretty much usually uh, at that second layer um, of the tech stack. So that was a long-winded answer to your question, but- <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to follow up. So if I say blockchain, does that only mean Bitcoin? No. I mean, okay. So technically, if you say blockchain, that's like not actually a thing. So the appropriate terminology would be to specify a blockchain, right? Like the Bitcoin blockchain, or to say blockchain technology as like a class of technology. But when people say, I'm going to put it on quote, the blockchain, mm-hmm. like that's not, a, that's not a thing exactly. Right. So, so yes and no. <laughs> and so when we talk about Ethereum, is not the other one. Um, when we talk about that, so that's on a different blockchain from Bitcoin. Yeah, the, it runs on what I would refer to as the Ethereum protocol. Technically, and, they're, and they operate very diff- differently. The Bitcoin blockchain um, just operates on a transaction basis, not on what you might think of as an account model. So like your bank account is an account where you keep track of a ledger and you have debits and credits, right? The, the Bitcoin blockchain does not operate on an account model. A basic building blocks of the Bitcoin blockchain is a transaction. And so what is literally being tracked, which is why calling it a ledger doesn't, it's not quite the right metaphor, but what's literally being tra- tracked is, so Carla has 10 Bitcoin. And in the Bitcoin blockchain, if I have 10 um, and they're all from what, a Bitcoin is actually an unspent transaction output. So what I have is a private key that will unlock these um, these outputs if I want to move them, uh, which is associated with the public key, somewhere you could send me more if you wanted. So I have a private key that will unlock the script and I could send them on to you. So say I have 10 unspent transaction outputs altogether and I wanted to send you five. The way that the Bitcoin blockchain works is I'd have to send you five, but I'd also have to send five back to myself. I have to spend them all because now they're spent transaction outputs. They can't stay there as unspent transaction outputs. I have to create new ones. 
uh, and I send you five and I send back five back to myself. And the only way, like a good way to, I think, think about it is like when you go, you know, back to when, uh, back to when things could actually cost a dollar and you're I'm like, I was a kid, things could actually cost a dollar and, um, or maybe even 50 cents. And I had a dollar, I had a $1 bill and the thing cost 50 cents. So I'd go up and get my piece of candy for 50 cents. I give the whole dollar to the clerk. I wouldn't like split it in half and hand them half a dollar bill. And then they'd keep 50 cents and I'd get 50 cents back. Right. It's the same thing in Bitcoin in Ethereum. On the other hand, Ethereum is an account-based model and you really, it is much more akin to like looking at a ledger of debits and credits. Um, and it just, it just operates. It's just a different model in part because Ethereum isn't, um, Ethereum operates on a virtual machine. So the theory of Ethereum is it's, Ethereum is a big network that creates this giant virtual computer that processes transactions like a computer would. And the idea is you can build more things, more computer programs in this virtual machine, whereas Bitcoin blockchain is much more difficult to build things on top of it. Okay. Um, so you always hear about like ICOs, NFTs. It's always happening on Ethereum or other protocols like Ethereum and less likely to be happening on Bitcoin. So I've got a Cash App account. It says I can put Bitcoin in my Cash App account and convert it to dollars immediately and, you know, pay for things using Bitcoin. What is going like what is happening when I put Bitcoin in my Cash App account? Yeah. So when when you Cash App would be what we might call a I mean, I say this without knowing the specific details of the software that Cash App uses, but generally um, an app like Cash App is what we might call a custodial wallet. So I, when I send my, when I put my Bitcoin in my cash app wallet, I'm send, I am transacting with them. I am sending my Bitcoin to them. And now it's their unspent transaction output. And I'm asked, like I've given it to them. And if they wanted to like run off with it, they, they could, cause I couldn't force them to give it back to me. Uh, except law, right? But like as a technical matter, they could just have it now. Um, there's a saying in, in the cryptocurrency industry, not your keys, not your coin. And what you've done by putting your Bitcoin in the cash app wallet is give them the keys to that Bitcoin. So technically not yours anymore. Um, but uh, so that that's what's happening there. I'm turned often in a custodial wallet arrangement when I send my um, crypto to cash app or to Coinbase, maybe um, I am giving them my crypto for them to custody for me. It would be the idea. There are other wallets, self-hosted wallets, which is kind of a silly way to think about it, but self-hosted wallets where it's just software where I control it all. Maybe somebody's providing that software to me. Coinbase also has a self-hosted wallet version where I'm still, in, I, it's still my keys, still my coin, but I'm just using their software to do it. But generally speaking, they're custodying the crypto for me, which is the less safe way to do it. So then about the, the transfer to cash part is them taking that away from my, so like assume I send it to them, they put it in their own wallet. Then they keep like a separate Excel ledger that says I owe Carla to Bitcoin, right? I wish, but um, <laughs> I owe Carla to Bitcoin. And then I'm like, okay, I want to, you know, cash out one of those Bitcoin for the, what is it like $25,000 now? I haven't yeah. checked at the moment, but I want to cash one of those out for $25,000. Like, okay. And they send $25,000 to my bank. Um, and then they just take debit that away in the Excel sheet. Now she only has one Bitcoin with us. And then they just keep that other Bitcoin like it's theirs because it is. So it's like, I mean, it's just like when you put money into PayPal or Cash App to like pay your friend for a hotel room or to split dinner. 
you tr you're transferring your money in. You're right. They that you said that I was like they technically could just not send the money to my friend, right? But yeah. they they do, right? And so plus law, right? There's yeah. laws that mean they should, right? <laughs> like law says they have to send it to you if I'm trying to pay Carla for dinner. Same thing with Bitcoin, but let's say Bitcoin was worth thirty thousand dollars when you put it in your wallet with Cash App, and now it's worth twenty five. Do they have to give you thirty, or do they give you twenty five? They give you what it's worth at the time yeah. that, that you spend it. Mm -hmm. Yep. So I asked that question because, you know, it follows into my next question. Um, one thing I've seen on the internet and I've talked to Christina and Sergio about what they've noticed on Reddit. I've seen it on the internet too. People don't understand the difference between like actually selling your Bitcoin and getting out 50,000 or 25,000 or whatever it's worth that day, trading in Bitcoin futures and investing. Um, or just letting it sit on the block, sitting on the blockchain and it, it goes up and down and fluctuates. So they will say, you know, I spent $30,000 and I bought one Bitcoin. It is now worth $25,000. Who took my $5,000 is what gets said on the internet, which crazy to people like us, yeah. but lay people really don't understand what's happening. Or they will go on Robinhood and invest in Dogecoin and invest in other crypto stocks on Doge, Dogecoin and will say, oh, I bought $100 worth of Dogecoin. Where are my $100 worth of, where's my $100? Yeah. That's clearly not what's happening. So no, let's that, break. that's not, not how it works. No, um, it's not like when you exchange dollars for euros, right? It right. is not. It's right. something different. So let's break down, you know, an explanation of this. So when people say they're investing in crypto on the internet, right? You go on, you go on Robinhood and you're investing in crypto. Is that the same as cash? And how is that different from having crypto? Okay. Um, it, so it depends on, we're going to start with your definition of it and going on the internet and investing in crypto as being going on to Robinhood and investing in crypto. In that case, all I've done is, um, is give Robinhood the money and trust that they bought crypto for me. And then hopefully they did, <laughs> right? And then what they owe me in the end is if I sell it, whatever price I sell it for, whether I sell it back to them um, and they give me the price that it is, 14,000, 60,000, whatever, right? Um, then then I've that's what I'm doing. I'm selling it to them rather than like cashing it out. Uh, but they don't have to buy it from me. There's a, they're under no obligation to cash me out, right? Um, or if I trade it with someone, then I'm I'll get the the price that that person is willing to pay for it at the time. But all the while, if we're doing it all on Robinhood, um, we are trusting that Robinhood a actually has the coin that I asked them to buy for me, and then b that they haven't like spent it already, right? And that uh, recently there was this big Celsius sort of self-destruction. Mm -hmm. um, and that was part of it. Celsius had gone out and used crypto that they had purchased or that it had been given by users to do other things. And it got tied up and they couldn't get it back when people wanted to cash out. And it caused a big problem, <laughs> a big, huge problem like insolvency. Um, and so, um, so that's what you're doing when you're investing in crypto on Robinhood. You're just asking them to buy crypto for you and hold it. Just like you're asking them to buy, I don't know, a share of Apple and hold it for you. And then that share will vary in 
at price along with the market. So will the Bitcoin that they're holding for you. But if I want to invest in crypto on the internet, I can do that directly through the protocol without any intermediary whatsoever. But still, my Bitcoin will go up and down according to the market um, in value, just like it would if it was in in Robinhood. The difference is whether I trust Robinhood to stay solvent and have my Bitcoin in the end versus whether I trust myself not to lose my private keys, which has happens a lot too. Right. <laughs> and then if you lose your private keys, you don't have it at all. So. so how about when people are investing on like Coinbase and they're like, I'm in 20 different crypto stocks is what they say. Right. And so we can debate whether it's actually we should talk about whether it's stock or not when they're investing in crypto stock on Coinbase. How is that different than when they're doing it on Robinhood? Or is it the same thing? Is it the same thing? So to be honest, I don't own any crypto on Robinhood and I haven't tried to trade there. Mm -hmm. So I can't compare from personal experience. But for Coinbase, um, I could just buy and hold the same way we talked about in the way of Robinhood. And in that case, I'm still trusting Coinbase that they bought it and they're holding it for me, right? Or I could send them crypto I already have and they could hold it for me. Then Coinbase has a variety of service offerings. And one of them is you would put it in a trading wallet. And that trading wallet would be designed for you to sort of arbitrage the price of crypto and what you know about the market the same way if you were a stock trader um trying to make money off of your trades right trying to guess how the market is going but in and you can do that in a variety of ways you can do um i don't think on coinbase and there are other exchanges where you can borrow and trade on margin Mm -hmm. um and uh trade on leverage uh but um but it, it, it operates in that way much much like if you're a day trader generally i don't know if that's and, and i would question. like i would just you know i keep emphasizing this but you know i will sometimes get those instagram or facebook or twitter like dm messages where it's like i made a i'm a billionaire because i traded crypto on the internet and i'm investing in futures and join me in being a millionaire too why aren't you in crypto um and it's i think it's really really important to emphasize that one, you really shouldn't take advice from a stranger who's DMing me you on social media. Like, don't do that. Um, be very careful about taking advice from people who are posting videos on social media and claiming they're millionaires and billionaires because they're probably they might just be taking your cash. Uh, but there are not regulated markets to do everything like you can do with stock, right. with crypto. So just be very, very careful where you're investing and what you are doing. Yeah, great. And in particular, if someone's DMing you and like, I can help you become a billionaire, just send me, like, just send me your, your, to- your coins and I'll manage it for you. Like, n- not your keys, not your coin, right? So if you right. send it to them, they have no obligation to give it back to you. Um, right. And maybe they're only a billionaire because people keep sending them their coins. Yeah. Maybe. All right. Yeah. Now, quickly, or as quickly as we can, what are NFTs, right? Like, we we see, you know you know, all these celebrities paid a million dollars for this NFT and, you know, and it's like just a digital image or whatever. So what is happening with that? What's an NFT? Okay. So an NFT stands for non-fungible token and we call them non-fungible tokens because unlike cryptocurrency and 
most tokens, um, they are not fungible. So the idea is Bitcoin and uh, other cryptocurrencies are fungible. And so far, like every Bitcoin can is interchangeable with another. It all is valued the same price at that time, right? That you're, and it doesn't really matter which one you're using exactly. Um, but uh, like, it's the same, like $1 bill is worth $1 bill is worth $1 bill, that kind of thing. You can replace it with $1. But an NFT is a unique digital object, non-fungible. It cannot be, be like swapped out with something else. They're unique and they are unique because they're built that way. Technically, they have embedded identifiers to distinguish them from any other. So each NFT itself is a token, namely a smart contract, form of a smart contract that is unique and identifiable that way. Um, now, the token, the, the NFT token can point to other things, right? You can, and this is true of regular cryptocurrency, you can embed pointers into Bitcoin and have it point off to other things, right? But if you make an NFT point to something like a digital image of art, right? You can essentially connect the two things via a hash so that you know this NFT, this unique digital item is connected to this digital piece of art, right? Um, when I buy an NFT though, and it depends, like I say, all of this with the regular disclaimers, like it's going to depend what you're buying. It's going to depend entirely on the platform from which you purchase it and what their terms of services are. Okay. So that being said, many of the platforms for NFTs, their, NF their um, terms of service basically say, when you buy the NFT, you're buying the token. That's great. And you are buying a license to display, use, sometimes used for commercial purpose, sometimes not. Um, the digital art, for example, or whatever it is that's connected to the um, the NFT. So the big example is Bored Apes, right? Mm -hmm. So if I purchase the Bored Ape, which I am not cool enough to own, unfortunately, <laughs> if I purchase, I really won't, they think they're cool, but um, if I purchase the Bored Ape, then I am purchasing the NFT that's giving me a license to display the image of the board ape. And I don't know that this is true for board apes. So this is a clarification there, but um, sometimes licenses like that are non-transferable, non-exclusive, <laughs> not worldwide licenses to display and enjoy the image, right? So then, and those platforms, when you sell your NFT to someone, yes, you've sold the token, good for you. <laughs> but mm -hmm. the licenses in the background, sometimes, and not all, not for all platforms, but for some, sometimes operate just like a, an uh, um, in-game digital item in like World of Warcraft Gold, right? Where what's happening in the background is you have this license with the um, platform and then they, when you sell your NFT, they extinguish your license and they create a new license with the new owner of the NFT. But still all anyone has is technically a non-exclusive, non-transferable license to enjoy the image, right? You're not actually owning the image necessarily. Sometimes, it like I said, it depends, all depends on the contract, but what it is you're buying is totally contractually based. It depends on what the contract says. Well, and, and I'd like to clarify that, you know, the reason it matters whether you truly own it or whether you just have a license to display it is kind of like the difference between owning your house and renting an apartment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and a non-exclusive, non-transferable right to rent your apartment. Yeah. Right. Like you can't <laughs> sell your apartment. You can live in your, you have the right to occupy your apartment, yeah. but you can't, sometimes you can't even sublease. Right. And, you definitely, and you definitely cannot sell your apartment to somebody else. Um, so I think that what, the reason I point that out too is that should impact the value. 
<laughs> right? You think. You yeah. would think, but people aren't reading their contracts. No. Right? So exactly yeah, how, you know, buying a house should should be more than renting an apartment. So an NFT that gives you full rights right. should be more expensive than an NFT that you're just renting, but nobody's reading their contracts except for Carla and people like me. <laughs> So, well, so Berkeley did a study like in, in people's defense, I think Berkeley did a study or somebody did a study that said like, if you actually read all the terms of service to which you are subject, like that you're signing up newly each year, um, it would take you a month or so of your life every year to like, just read the contracts that you agree to. So, I mean, in people's defense, there is that, but, uh, but still if it, some of these things are quite expensive. And if I was buying something that expensive, I would read the terms of the deal before I did so. Yes. But to be clear, it's not true for all of them, right? right. There are some that are genuinely like NFTs that represent shares in a company, for example, and like the NFT is the thing, right? So where, where you should be careful is when the NFT points to something else that's not on chain and that pointer, like knowing what your property rights and that other thing are, that's where you have to pay attention. So what is making these things so valuable? And like, you know, we talked about sometimes you're renting, sometimes you're owning, sometimes you get the right to display something, but you don't hold anything in your hand most, right? No. So so what is it that you're getting and why is this so valuable? What's what's causing this trend? Well, so it's not just the, the one objection, like you're not holding anything in your hand. It's not uncommon for intangible things to be, quite valuable, right? Intellectual property generally, right? For a company can be quite, um, so patents can be worth quite a lot, right? For example, and that a patent in itself is an intangible piece of property. So it's not uncommon for intangible things to be worth a lot, but um, the, I mean, I don't, I, I'm not always sure what makes <laughs> one NFT do much better than another, but certainly in the world of digital collectibles, it it is a little bit about rarity, right? And um, so board apes, there's only so many of them. And so they're replicating the same sort of scarcity that works well with Bitcoin in the NFT sort of digital collectible space. It's the same thing that like made the ba beanie baby craze go wild or whatever. Back in the day, there's limited editions and you can mutate them or like with the crypto kitties, you could breed new ones. It was like a um, the Tamagotchi. Did you ever have yeah. that little Tom? It's like that. I'm too old for that, but I remember. <laughs> well, I wasn't too old for that, but I, I, I think I had Tamagotchi. But anyway, um, or maybe that makes me older. I don't know, but whatever. No, I you're, 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 you're like five years younger than me, so this is why. I'm anyway, listening. yeah. Okay, so I had one, and it's just like that. Like Crypto Kitties is like that, except through NFTs. And the but in that case, like the breeding them, then you get an even new rare one, and like that's worth more. And I'm not really sure. A lot of it has to do with the rarity of the collectible, and then on top of that, it's just like art. So whatever intangible thing makes you love this art and that artist more than another is the same kind of thing that goes goes into nfts i think but the one i the one that i really don't understand yet the economic model behind it is the nfts that represent title to virtual prop like virtual land yeah i don't i'm this one i can't quite figure out like why i don't the, that's the only one i can yeah i don't I get don't it know. yeah I don't get it, but I don't, I don't live my life online. I, I mean, ish, but not in the way that these people live their lives online. So one of the more interesting thing to me about all of this is the regulations or lack thereof. <laughs> so let's start with NFTs. 
Are there agencies out there, government agencies, regulating NFTs yet? Yeah. So, I, so all cryptocurrency is like I don't. Mm, all current cryptocurrency is regulated to the extent you're conducting regulable activity, right? So it's not agencies don't regulate the thing, right? They, it's not whether it's a cryptocurrency or a token or an NFT. It's not that unique technical implement that is regulated. It's what you're doing with it that is regulated. So if I uh, if I found a way to launder money using NFTs, yeah, FinCEN's going to care about that. If I'm a money transmitter who happens to transmit money through NFTs, or like say an NFT was used, um, the thing it pointed to was a form of of gold, like uh, physical gold or something. And so technically it's a stable coin and I'm money transmitting. Maybe FinCEN's going to care about that and they'll regulate the money transmission piece of it. But it's the activity of transmitting money that's regulated. Similarly, if NFTs are being sold as an investment contract, the SEC is going to care about that. And they've signaled that they're going to look at NFTs in the short term, right? Similarly, if um, there does, if, if there does become a market for futures, and um, then uh, this, then the regulatory agencies are going to care about that as well, right? Um, uh, so certainly anything that um, that that is the activity that is regulated, it's not going to matter whether it's in cryptocurrency um, tokens or NFTs, frankly. The piece that is, um, I think, just sort of becoming mature for NFTs is the private law of NFTs. Um, in part because I think that's the part that is um, sort of becoming mature for the whole uh, ecosystem. So the Uniform Law Commission um, just this summer and the, I should say the American Law Institute and the Uniform Law Commission just this summer finished their process for amending the UCC. And those amendments, although they deal with many topics related to emerging technology, one of the things that they do is create an Article 12 um, to build the private law related to digital, they call um, controllable electronic records, but really um, digital assets in, in any of their forms that have commercial value, like NFTs, um, cryptocurrency and tokens. So I, I do think, and I think the custody piece is um, is still less developed. Uh, and UNIDRAW, um, the International Institute for Unification of Private Law, is working on principles related to both the same thing, the sort of transfer and um, both the treasure to say the transfer and the custody uh, piece of uh, private law piece of cryptocurrency and NFTs and tethered assets and whatever else you might come up with. But yeah, certainly it just depends. Right. So what's happening with um, so what, what Carla described with FinCEN and, and SEC and I guess also DOJ, if you were a victim of fraud, you know, that's federal law. That's, you know, across state lines, et cetera. But the private law component that she's talking about would have to be, and that's why we have uniform laws for that in the law, that has to be adopted state by state because the federal government can't control your day-to-day -day contracts. And so, you know, if, if someone has breached a contract but not committed fraud enough to be a crime and trigger the DOJ or trigger like them going to jail, we actually don't have law that's developed yet. For, I mean, you can apply the current basic contract principles to it, but right. things that are specific to this, this type of cryptocurrency hasn't been developed yet. And that's what Article 12 of the UCC would do. It, it would be for what happens when if Carla and I are contracting and, you know, she does something wrong. 
that's going to be governed by the UCC. But if, you know, she's actually making an investment contract and turning it into a security, that's the SEC. And that is also your individual state, um, either, you know, secretary of state or whatever with your blue sky laws. So it's different layers of regulation in the United States. And then she also mentioned the international component because we don't have international law um, specifically for this stuff yet. Um, And I think the reason that we, that I bring up who's regulating it um, and I've learned this from you. So many people who are investing in cryptocurrency think that this means that they can be anarchists and escape the law. No. Yeah, no. And indeed, if you're committing a crime using cryptocurrency, like that's not really very smart. <laughs> so you asked earlier if cryptocurrency is the same as cash. It is in the sense that like, if you have cash in your wallet and someone steals your wallet, that sucks, right? Like good luck getting that back. You can try, but good luck um, getting, maybe get the wallet back, maybe get the cards inside it back, but the cash is probably gone, right? Mm-hmm. Similarly, if someone steals your private key, um, then, or if you lose your private key, right, then your, your crypto is probably gone. The difference is it's much, much easier actually to trace the crypto than it is to trace the cash. So back to like, if you're using cryptocurrency to be a criminal, that's probably not the smartest thing you've ever done. (laughs) That's why, because there are chain analytics, even though everything is in a, you know, series of encrypted transactions, you can use chain analysis to put some pieces together and track things down. Indeed, I think it's like the coolest thing that's happened all summer. Um, There is, there was a big hack of the LCX exchange and they lost, they were, you know, tons of money was stolen, right? They were able to use chain analysis to track down the addresses to which some of the stolen funds were taken. And they, some went to an address in Coinbase, which is like really not smart of the criminal because Coinbase is a fully regulated entity. And so anyone with an, uh, an account there is fully verified, like they can figure out who you are. And then that's that, right? Some went into USDC, which is a stable coin, but it's operated on a permission system. So it, there is an issuer and there's someone running the network. Unlike Bitcoin, there is someone sort of behind the network that can block transactions, basically blacklist transactions. And um, because they could figure out where the, um, the, which the private addresses were, they couldn't figure out the identity on some, in some cases, not the Coinbase part, but the identity of the person. So they sued John Doe, right? And they sought a TRO and they got a freezing order saying the judge said, you can't spend this cryptocurrency in these addresses, right? And then I love this part, Helen and Knight served John Doe at their um, their uh, crypto, their wallet address using an NFT. It's the coolest thing ever. It's called a service. They called it a service NFT and they air, you know, they airdrops the NFT into the wallet, which just means like you open your wallet one day and there's cryptocurrency. It was dropped in there. And this one was called HK service token. And uh, if you if it had a link, the court uh, required Colin and Knight to include a link in the token. If you clicked on the link, it would take you to the page where they ha- um, were required to list all both like the motion that got the order, the order itself and all the supporting documents. And um, and then that also proved like if the person opened it. Right. And then it was um, them. Yeah. But the court said that that would count as service. Um, and, well, then- and that's more secure service of process than regular service of process. Right. Like. Yeah. 
you know, yeah, with service exactly. process, if someone spells my last name Chapman instead of Chapman, but they show up at my house and it's my social security number, court's like close enough. But if you airdropped it into my Apple wallet, it's me. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's so coolest thing, like coolest thing that happened this summer. Um, but to me anyway, I just think it's really innovative and like good for Holland and Knight for thinking about it. But um could they get then, a default and, judgment that way and like just take all the money? I mean, if they don't show up and defend themselves, yeah, I'm gonna follow the case to see what happens. But um, but also because they were able to use because the um thieves had uh, transferred the stolen funds into USDC, which was a permission system, they were able to get an order um, for uh, Circle and the Circle entity that I forget the name that runs the protocol. Um, and they were able to blacklist those wallets. So basically those funds are frozen in place until the court decides what to do with them. But wow. they, so they were basically able to freeze stolen funds. So they found like, so if you're a criminal, <laughs> it's bad news. They can figure out where it goes. And then they can maybe, maybe they, depending on what you did with it, maybe they figure out who you are. And there's police activity happening at Coinbase Ireland, which is where that account is, right? And so that's happening. But um, so maybe they can figure out who you are if you're and not smart enough to put, to put it in a verified account. But, um, but separately, even if you keep it on like uh, uh, pseudonymous accounts, right? We can still figure out ways to freeze the stuff and, you know, come after you, which I love. So it's just not, not the smartest. And like the federal government's been seizing crypto from criminals for a long time. And then they auctioned it off later. The FBI, the Secret Service agents have all, I mean, this is not new. It's been happening since, I don't know, a long time since I was in practice. Um, but yeah, this is not smart. <laughs> to do so this what, I, what I like to tell my students is don't think you're going to invest in crypto and not pay taxes. Yes. yes. <laughs> and do not, do not become a drug trafficker and buy and sell your heroin or whatever yeah. using crypto because cash, you know, there's no record of cash, right? right? So it's still, if you want to be a drug dealer, cash is still the best thing. And then go like Ozark and figure out how to launder your money later, right. but like not the on the blockchain. Yeah. Cause the Bitcoin blockchain tracks transactions. Like that's what it does. Like that's, and it trans transactions for like all of time. <laughs> so this is not the smartest way, smartest way to do it. But, well, and I think it's generational. They're like, oh, it's on my phone. So I'm not using a bank and, you know, yeah. it's outside of the system. And it's like, no, it's actually more in the system. Yeah, exa exactly. But that's also, I mean, this is probably off topic at this point, but that's also part of why people worry about things like central bank digital currencies, because it is more than the system, right? So it has real privacy risks. Um, but then it's also why this thing, I don't know if you follow, I also often tell my students that like, if I raise a, a current events reference, you're like, what is she talking about? Because I live in a kind of different current events world than everyone else. But the big one for us right now is that Tornado Cash, which is a smart contract, a piece of software um, that's a mixer. So it's designed to help um, enhance the privacy of your transactions. OFAC um, listed it as a on the specially designated persons list. And so now if you send any of your cryptocurrency transactions through Tornado um, Cash, or yeah, then you are um, through this mixing service, then you are uh, committing a serious crime because it's strict liability because you're committing a transaction with a sanctioned person. Essentially, it's, it's a software, but you're but it would, it's the same as if you're committing a transaction with a, a sanctioned person. The problem is a lot of decentralized protocols 
just use this software like as part of how they work. And, um, and now they have to figure out if they can backtrack that, if they want to backtrack that, what the issue is if they don't. Right. Um, and then like, because it's just incorporated, a lot of people are unwittingly transacting with it in the days since. And so if they figure it out, then the question is like, what do you do with the cryptocurrency that is now tainted essentially? And you're, you're really not no longer allowed to use it. Like what, what do you do anyway? It's very, right. and it's, it's like the big topic right now. Well, I mean, anytime you talk about personhood, you know, I'm excited. And um, it's you're interesting right. that, you know, declaring it a person and making it a strict liability cl- crime totally changes. Uh, like you can't, you can accidentally do this. Exactly. Right? That's the point. You can accidentally yeah. do it. Yeah. Now we've kind of talked about a lot of you know, very crazy things and all the different things that are happening with crypto and given an explainer. But I would love to talk about what the future holds and some of the ways that you have been using uh, blockchain technology in conjunction with states um, to make things in our life easier, like recording title and those sorts of things. So tell us about the code you wrote that is a self-executing smart contract um, and, and how that will make things better if we can switch other things to, to, to that format. Yeah, thanks. So I, um, it's been a long project because I'm not a super skilled coder. <laughs> so I've been learning over time. But um, I built a, uh, basically the Article 9 filing system out of smart contracts. And so for those of you who are like, what's the Article 9 and a filing system? Article 9 is the article of the UCC that governs secured transactions. And secured transaction is a loan that you secure with collateral. And when a creditor makes a secured um, loan, they, uh, in order to, so there's, two things. One, um, it's enforceable against the debtor, the person that's borrowing the money, but in order to sort of like secure their place in line to that specific asset that's listed in the contract, they file a form usually, um, sometimes in paper, but more increasingly now online um, with the secretary of state's office. Usually in Florida, there's a private uh, organization that does the filing system, but everywhere else is the secretary of state's office. Um, and that filing, uh, system is, um, it doesn't all, it, it's designed to give notice to people who come later that this asset is already part of a secure transaction, right? So that everybody else knows they're going to be second, third, fourth in line. The difficulty is that for reasons of the way the, the filing system works, when you search in it, you don't always know where your place in line is. You don't always get the information you need to make that determination. And so I um, I built it out of smart contracts on the idea that I could make searching easier. I could make searching more accurate so that you get actual notice and not just constructive notice. Like the law just assumes you got the notice if the filing was made. Um, and, and it works. Um, so I built it out of Lexon, which is actually code that's English. So I wrote English and the computer can read my English. It's like a stilted, ver- like it's a computer program version of English, right? It's not like the full English language, um, but it's English nonetheless. Uh, and the computer reads that and um, executes smart contracts. And currently I think Lexon is um, compatible with Solidity. So it'll run on the Ethereum protocol and with um, Sophia. So it will run on the Eternity um, blockchain. But, um, and I know other um, uh, com- sort of compatible uh, interoperability, maybe is the word, is in the works as well. But um, 
the idea there is one that I have like more broadly or a bigger idea about being able to execute law in real time the way it was meant to work, right? So we have a lot of laws that are in the books that don't operate uh, in the world the way they were meant to operate when they were written. And if you can execute the, the law as it is written, then sometimes complexities could fall away, sometimes ambiguities could be resolved. And in the case of Article 9 in particular, I think if people would adopt this thing, um, like I could cut out, I don't know, three weeks worth of class probably, because there are a whole bunch of rules in Article 9 we created to fix the deficiencies in the existing system. So if those deficiencies didn't exist, we don't need those rules, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that could be true in a bunch of other areas of the law. I am working now um, on, um, on basically doing the same thing for LLC operating agreements, mm -hmm. um, in part because uh, several states have adopted um, clarifications maybe of their LLC statute saying that you could have um, part of your governance and code um, and so um, if I can, if the operating agreement is the thing that governs the um, management of the entity, maybe I can make the governance sort of happen exactly the way the agreement is written. But um, not the thing you find is not everything in the contract is executable, right? It's not everything needs to be executed by code. And so the trick is figuring out how to write the whole contract the way we expect it to look mm -hmm. in order to carve off risk for the parties, but still um, drive efficiencies using code. Otherwise, just go back to the regular words and it's fine, right? right. Um, but, but I do think there's this aspect of like, if, we could, if there are other areas of the law where we can implement the law itself through the um, technology, then we can in increase efficiencies and clarity um, and sort of help, help the markets generally. So when, when I explain Article 9 to my students, you know, I say, you know, it, when you buy a car, right, it's a titled vehicle. And if you buy a car and you take out a loan, that's called a purchase money security interest, right? So as long and, as you use the money to buy the car, yes. right? You take out a loan just to buy the car. So usually you go to the dealer, you go to Toyota, you buy a Prius, they give you a loan for the Prius and you pay Toyota every month. That's a purchase money security interest, which is an article nine transaction subject to a coda, but different different story for a different day. But in order for Toyota to maintain their lien on your car, so you cannot sell your car to someone else, one, they hold the title, but if it were not a titled vehicle, they would be using Article 9. So, you know, with things that are not cars, where the, they can hold the title, with things like computers in an office or, you know, a tractor at a construction company or something else that is personal property, where the only thing that can keep you from selling it to someone else or mortgaging it to someone else to get money, the only thing that keeps you from doing that is that, you know, future lenders, future purchasers are supposed to check the Article 9 database. Um, and as Carla explained, it's not searchable. Um, if they spell your name wrong, they can't find it. Um, if you describe the property wrong, it doesn't apply. You know, three weeks of class, literally because of all the things that could go wrong. But with Carla's code, it could go in exactly as you intended. You People could search, you, you know, you could put the token number or something exactly. in the record and yep. link it to the property and we wouldn't have these problems. I mean, the thing that I think about too, um, the, the two next things I think about is, 
you know, certificates of incorporation and like the LLC certificates of formation um, that just make the thing come into existence. So we could kind of eliminate um, what's it called de facto and de jure and all that stuff that we talk about when people fail to actually form it, you'd know immediately that you formed it. Um, And how much quicker could like buying a house be? Right. If if we could just close by executing a smart Mm -hmm. contract and they transfer the money, you get the keys and it does not take days or hours, you know, to get all the paperwork together and all the filing in the county record. So I think this is quite revolutionary and fascinating. Um, And I can just keep thinking of additional applications, uh, but it shows how much more secure things can be. It's not just about trading currency and the fun stuff. We really can make the law better if we can use this technology, right? Um, Yeah. The other thing I don't think people realize is, you know, I remember doing transactional work or even, you know, getting a judgment in a lawsuit and having to go find people's assets and the number of times that you have to physically go to a county clerk's office and pull titles and UCC filing statements. Um, A lot of your lawyer fees are junior associates going places and looking in boxes. (laughs) true. true. Like far more of your time um, than I think any lawyer would like to admit. All right. So the next thing I want to ask you about, let me see how much time we've got few more minutes. You know, how can the average person who is like, I actually do want to invest in crypto. I've read about it on the internet. What's the best way for them to find out what's a good investment? What's a safe investment? What's a safe platform to invest on? Is there, you know, a centralized resource out there? Is is there information they should be reading? It's a good question. So there are so there's lots of information out there. The question is, what's good information? Um, so the benefit of the ecosystem that is that it is largely decentralized and everyone and it's very welcoming ecosystem. If you're interested, there's someone who's be willing to help you. The question is whether they know what they're talking about or not. So um, so that's one thing. Uh, there are um, and then blanking on the name of it at the moment, but there are certainly there are online, um, modules issued by I can't I can't think of what it is I'll have to tell you later but anyway there is there is online courses that are free that are quite good and reputable um, that you could take um, not knowing the name doesn't help you very much though um, and um, well, I think free helps because so mm-hmm. many people want to charge you money for this information no there's definitely free resources that are good free resources um, then um, I want to say it's put out by MIT, like to be honest, but, or it could be Stanford. It's one of the two, but <laughs> they offer these courses, these online modules for free. Um, and then there is, uh, so that's how would you like learn about it broadly? Those are, I would definitely recommend that. I would recommend anything from the foundation that operates the protocol. So like you can trust the Ethereum foundation's research reports, right? I mean, some of it's going to be marketing, but you can, it, it's coming from the source, the people that are um, that are putting out the code uh, often. Um, same, somewhat the same thing with the Bitcoin Foundation, um, but for Bitcoin and for policy issues broadly, they do really good research, um, uh, but they do have lawyers on staff who talk about the legal issues to look out for. In terms of whether you're looking at a safe platform, I would, um, if they are a regulated entity, 
most of the time, the regulations require them to display their licenses on their website. So the, I would start with money transmission. If you are giving dollars to a, a company like Coinbase or Kraken or Gemini, whoever, um, and you're transferring money to other people through them, it, it is highly likely that they're uh, governed as money transmitters. So go look and see if they have their money transmission license posted somewhere, usually down there around legal and privacy policy. They'll have um, part of their legal piece will be a page explaining what their licenses uh, are. You'd also look in your terms of service. It usually says in the terms of service what they are, who they are. If they're a trust company, for example, a lot of the custodians operate as trust companies, like a form of state-issued bank kind of, um, particularly out of New York, uh, Wyoming, and Nevada. Um, and then... Uh, and then you might look up their regulatory filings, like if they're if they are purportedly regulated by the SEC and they say they're fully compliant, then you go look it up, find out if they actually are, right? Um, they're uh, public lists of those things, but that's certainly the due diligence I do before I use a platform. Um, I don't use a platform that does not display their licenses or otherwise disclose who their regulators are um, on their in their materials. All right. So these are great takeaways. Um, you know, I think the first takeaway is the content is free, right? This information, basic information is free. Um, and I think generally you can trust a university website, right? So the yeah. things that people like Carla and I write, you know, it gets yeah. reviewed. We have to have citations. So if it's on MIT's website, Stanford's website, you know, an article you find on SSRN or on Google Scholar, you can probably trust that, um, not the guy who's DMing you on Twitter. No. But, you know, something on a university website you can trust. Um, and then before you send someone money, read your terms of service and read their read that legal section of the website and see if they are licensed and then double back and check the agency. Those are the ways to do it safely, um, because a lot of people are like, oh, my God, you know, my NFT was stolen or oh my God, you know, I think I thought I bought crypto and it's gone. Um, and the way that that's happening is you're probably not buying from a reputable source, right? Mm -hmm. So make sure you do just a little bit of research before you go transferring your money and thinking you're going to be a dot-com billionaire, a new, yeah. a new dot-com billionaire. And look, some of that stuff is stuff I would recommend for like regular money transfer apps too. Read your terms of service, find out like if the uh, the balance that you're holding with them, if they put a security interest on that, right? If they have the ability to um, settle by just uh, swiping your funds, you know, and whether you have the uh, ability to push a dispute, ask those questions. Uh, and they should be in your terms of service, even just for regular, uh, regular currency. Um, those are, that's advice I would use for any uh, app related to your money. But yeah. Agreed. All right. Well, thank you so much, Carla, for being on the show. Thank you all for tuning in to Getting Common. If you ever miss an episode, you can catch the rebroadcast anywhere podcasts are played, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on our Voice America website. You can also catch it on our YouTube channel, and you can contact me on social media at Carla C. Thank you again, Carla, for being on the show. Um, thank and you thank for you having all me. for listening. Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion.